Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. Welcome to the Jaxa Space and Astronautical Science Podcast. I'm your host Toshihisa Mikaido. Listeners from the previous episodes may notice that we've updated the podcast name to be a bit more specific, but otherwise is unchanged. Today we have theoretical astrophysicist Ryuki Hyodo, who will talk to us about various space missions, including Cassini, Hayabusa 2, the Martian Moons Exploration Mission, uh, Bepi Colombo, and a brand new mission that is not even so well known in JAXA yet, known as OMPENS. We also discussed Duki's life in Japan and abroad before coming to JAXA and various other topics of interest, including his extraordinary success with publications and the first ever paper regarding potential life on other planets to appear in the famed academic journal Science. Please enjoy. Our guest today from JAXA's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, theoretical astrophysicist, and currently the most recent International Top Young Fellow, or ITYF, Yuki Hyodo. Yuki, welcome to the show. Hello, Nikaido-san. Thank you very much for inviting me here. So <laughs> no problem. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I, I like to start by asking the guest, you know, just what you do at JAXA specifically. Okay, so, so I'm a theoretical scientist uh, who does uh, planet formation in, in general. And uh, what we uh, say planet formation is we try to uh, find the answer how the planets are formed. But uh, since uh, the discovery of uh, exoplanets outside the solar system, we have um, uh, very diverse planetary systems. It's not always the same as the solar system. So that's why the planet formation, let's say theory, or the planet formation study is very, very complicated uh, every year because we find new planets every year. So my job is trying to understand how, in general, planets are formed. Can you give us an example of uh, how a planet might be formed or uh, the theory about that? Okay, uh, that's a very interesting question. So let's say in this way. So uh, we have uh, terrestrial planets like Earth, which is, uh, let's say, rocky planets. So it's closer to the sun in our solar system case. But if we look beyond uh, the orbit of Mars in our solar system case, we have Jupiter and Saturn, which we say these are giant planets, gas giants. So uh, these two uh, planetary planets are totally different. One has a gas, a lot of gas, but the other is only have a very thin atmosphere like the Earth. So uh, when we think about how planets are formed, uh, we first uh, divide it into two cases, like I said. So one is uh, to try to form terrestrial planets or rocky planets. And the other is that we try to form uh, giant planets or gas giants. And, and how do you do this uh, with, the th with the theory? Mm -hmm. Do you use some specific equations or programs? Right. So... So as a theoretical scientist, what we do is uh, first we try to understand 
but、uh, physics or chemistry is most important to form that point. And the second way is that we can use、uh, computer simulations. Let's say, like、uh, 20 years ago, we did not have、uh, good computers.、Mm-hmm. So, what we could do is only using、uh, equations, basically, or the physics or、uh, mathematics or the chemistry. It's about on the like, text. But now, since we have、uh, good、uh, computer simulations, what we do is that, so numerical simulations or computer simulations, Now, what we do is that we tell、uh, the equations in the computers, and in the computers, uh, uh, the computer calculates the equations in a way that the system evolves. And then we try to see what would be the consequences. But interestingly, if our、uh, equations are not really correct, The consequences are totally different from the real world. We couldn't form for other planets, or even we could form, the planets are totally different in the real system.、Okay. So it's like a step by step test and error, you know, and correct. Yes. So you, you get those、uh, results, and, and I guess then based on those results, you continue to do, look into. Uh, that more to further understand the, the physics and chemistry of it? Yes, right. I've heard that you've been involved in, in quite a few different missions, in、uh, I guess space missions in general. I think a lot of people think about when they think about organizations like JAXA or NASA or whatever is, is the missions themselves.、Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you've been involved in at least、uh, five different major missions. And in, in previous episodes, when we talked to、uh, James and Elizabeth,、mm-hmm. we heard a little bit about、uh, the Cassini mission, which I guess was、mm-hmm. the Saturn spacecraft. We also heard about the Hayabusa 2,、uh, which returned to Earth about a year ago、uh, with a sizable sample from an asteroid. And then the MMX mission, which is、uh, to explore the Martian moons. But I, I think you're involved in maybe a couple other missions. Can you explain? What those are? So, firstly,、uh, I would say the reason why、uh, the missions are important、uh, in my theoretical studies.、Okay? So, again,、uh, if you only do、uh, theoretical studies,、uh, you always basically imagine you know, what is important to form the planets. But in reality, always、uh, it goes beyond our imaginations. So, and then that's why we try to have a hint, not from only from physics or chemistry, from the textbook. And then, in order to get the hint, planetary exploration is a very, very important and very interesting. So, for example,、uh, let's first talk about Cassini, which is、uh, the mission I have uh, joined uh, the, for the first time in my career. I mean, So,、uh, the Cassini is、uh, NASA's、uh, mission to Saturn's system, and it did uh, uh, an in great success. So, first,、uh, what Cassini did is that、uh, the Cassini、uh, had a great or detailed picture of Saturn's rings as well as the moons around Saturn. And before going to、uh, Saturn's system by Cassini, we didn't expect something. For example, let's say, Because the location of Saturn is very far from the Sun compared to Earth. So basically, Saturn is very cold, cold locations. 
So what we imagined is that uh, the moons around Saturn is basically frozen, especially on the surface, because it's very far from the sun. The sunlight is very weak, so the temperature drops. However, what uh, Cassini found is uh, the Cassini found some water or plumes uh, coming out from the surface of some of the uh, moons around Saturn. Especially Enceladus is a very interesting uh, Saturn's moon now because uh, the Enceladus has a, let's say, continuously uh, flowing some plumes from the surface. And from that information, what we knew is now Enceladus interior is not solid, solid ice, but it's liquid ice. So there is an internal ocean. And from that internal ocean, and then if there is uh, some cracks on the surface, some water vapor or some water molecules are coming out as a plume. That was the biggest, one of the biggest findings that Cassini achieved. So Cassini found that Enceladus has uh, uh, an internal ocean, you're saying. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know about this uh, before that? No, uh, some, uh, some theory kind mm -hmm. of predicted, but... Uh, until we really see that is coming out from the surface, it's, uh, we didn't confirm. So that was confirmation that there is another ocean world. Oh, that's amazing. Beyond, <laughs> yeah, beyond the location of the Mars, but let's say it's a very cold location. Mm -hmm. I guess before we go on to the other projects, what specifically did mm -hmm. you do on uh, Cassini, on the Cassini spacecraft mission? What was your role? How were you involved? Right. So... Again, I'm a theoretical scientist. Mm -hmm. So what I do is that I try to understand how the moons around the Saturn, including Enceladus, are formed first place. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what we found, okay, well, this is one of my job is that uh, collaborating with uh, people from Cassini because uh, they told us, like uh, like me, theorist, they told us the real structure of Saturn's rings as well as the moon's size, okay? And then what we think in, interesting is that, okay, that there are many, many moons. So I didn't say that before, but uh, not only Enceladus, but we have, let's say, 10 or 20 moons around Saturn. It's not like around the Earth. We only have one single moon, which is a moon, okay? And interestingly, the size of the moons becomes larger and larger if you go further from Saturn itself. There is one interesting feature of Saturn's moon system. And then these moons are located just outside the rings. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that means we could imagine that there is a relationship or connections between rings and Saturn's moons. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what we thought uh, from a theoretical aspect is that let's imagine that there was no moons at early phase uh, or early stage of the Saturn's evolution. But instead we thought there is a huge rings, massive rings that can contain all the mass of the moons, for example, today. And then initially we imagine that there's only rings, massive rings. And then if we tell uh, the simulation computers that the ring particles collide each other or the gravitational interact each other. And we perform numerical simulations 
that it, it is called n-body simulation of ring particles because we have n means many, many particles. And what we found is that the rings spread and then it could form moons around the rings because the rings spread to form the moons. So the, the actual rings from the uh, planet mm. itself come together and, and form the moons over time, you're saying? Yeah, that's the point, yeah. And then by changing the, the mass of the rings, for example, in the simulations, mm -hmm. we could find how many moons are formed from the rings or how massive the moon is, something like that. So that was uh, me and my colleagues did uh, uh, in the Cassini missions. So Cassini provided us uh, many observational facts. And then we tried to explain that facts by numerical simulations or the evolution of Saturn's system. Interesting. Is there also a theory that I guess uh, Earth's moon and, and the moons of other planets could have come from rings around uh, that may have been around these planets as well? Yeah, that's right. It's a very important point. Uh, thanks for uh, pointing out. So the point is that if we have rings or the, let's say, debris disk, debris disk, mm -hmm. this could spread again and it could form the moons. So the point is, again, okay, another point is that uh, how the rings initially formed. This is the next question, okay? We are because going back point in time because we try to understand how the planet or the planetary system was uh, satellites are formed. This is my job. So now the next question is that how the rings itself formed. And in the case of, uh, let's say, tertiary planets like the Earth case, uh, giant impacts can form debris disk around the planets. In this case, we do not say rings around the terrestrial planets, but we say uh, disk, okay, debris disk. And it could form by impacts, big impacts. Uh, the impact of an asteroid or something? Yeah, impact of asteroid, but uh, much bigger than asteroids today, I guess. Let's say the Mars size collide to Earth, that oh. can form the debris disk, and then that can form our moon around Earth. So quite a large impact. <laughs> yeah, it's a quite, that's why I say a giant impact. Yes, yes. Right. But on the other hand, uh, in the case of giant planets, since the planet itself is really big, mm -hmm. we cannot expect uh, giant planets, giant impact to giant planets. I mean, instead, uh, uh, the reason how we can form rings around giant planets is uh, we have idea what we call a tidal disruption. Okay, tidal disruption is, uh, let's imagine that there's a many comets, okay, comets because it's outer region of the solar system. The comets are passing by to giant planets frequently. And if that comets get too close to giant planets, but without impacting, okay, since the gravity of giant planets is really strong, even without crushing, the gravity can destroy the comets and it, the fragments can orbit around giant planets and eventually forming a disk or rings in the case of giant planets. You know, this is also I published as a paper in 2017. So the origin of Saturn's rings could be the tidal disruption of passing big comets. 
uh, we're we're definitely going to get back into the the subject of your uh, of uh, the papers you've published in in a little while. Uh, <laughs> but uh, before that, I guess uh, it would be great if we could hear about the the other missions you were involved mm-hmm. in as well. The I guess the Hayabusa two MMX and and a couple others. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the Hayabusa two missions. So okay. Hayabusa two mission is a sample return mission from asteroid Gugu, and then. Uh, Usually, asteroids are located uh, between Mars and Jupiter, okay? But it's still far from Earth mm-hmm. because it's beyond the orbit of Mars. But sometimes, uh, due to the strong gravitational interaction, uh, some of the asteroids in the, in the region between Mars and Jupiter can scatter to near Earth. That is called, uh, we say, near-Earth asteroid. And Ryugu is one of the members of the near-Earth asteroid. And we send a spacecraft called Hayabusa 2 to Ryugu to get a sample from the surface. It's kind of a detail, but we have many different kinds of asteroids. So some asteroids are called a C-type asteroid. This is a case of Ryugu. And, and C-type... For carbon? Carbonaceous, uh, yeah. So we have uh, meteorites also, and some meteorites are classified into uh, carbonaceous chondrites. It contains some water. And we, we, we were not sure if this carbonaceous chondrites as a meteorite is the same as what we say C-type asteroid, but uh, from the spectral feature, these two bodies, so C-type asteroid and then carbonaceous chondrite as meteorites are similar. So we think these are connected, okay? Then in order to check, we went to Ryugu and we collect some sample and we brought it back to Earth. This is one of the things that we're hoping to learn from the sample, uh, whether these two are actually connected or not. Yeah, right, right. And then what we found is that it's already published, uh, I think, uh, two weeks ago or one month ago. So I can now say that. But okay. uh, now carbonaceous chondrite is the same as Ryugu's materials. Okay, so we now know that they are the, the same and they are connected. Yeah, connected, yeah. What exactly do you think this, uh, this information will help us uh, do going yeah. forward? Mm. So some of the uh, results is still uh, unpublished and still uh, under some research. But what we expect, what the reason why first place we went to Ryugu is that uh, we thought uh, Ryugu's materials or C-type asteroids are responsible for bringing her, her uh, water to Earth in the past. Okay, it's not Ryugu itself, but uh, we have other asteroids that is similar to Ryugu, and some of them can hit Earth in, uh, in the past, and that brought water to Earth. That's what we thought. So this is our ultimate goal to uh, explore Ryugu. So we are trying to now check the properties of water uh, in Ryugu's sample, and then we try to compare uh, that result to Earth's water and to try to connect uh, how the Earth's water came from. I, I guess either we don't know or you can't say yet uh, no. <laughs> how closely those are connected. Okay, That's uh, maybe forthcoming information. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and, please stay tuned, but it's a very interesting point. 
Uh, yes, I mean, water is definitely very important to Earth, so it would be interesting mm -hmm. to understand uh, yeah. where it came from. So your uh, your role in Hayabusa 2, I guess, was similar mm -hmm. to uh, Cassini, where you uh, received the information and then you uh, sort of made the equations and theories uh, based mm -hmm. on that information as to why things are occurring the way they are? Yeah, that's correct. So in the case of Ryugu, we have the two missions. What I need to do is that, okay, Ryugu is not really big. It's less than one kilometer size, okay? Mm -hmm. So there, but there is initially a big uh, parent body asteroid that is disrupted and form Ryugu, small asteroids. So what we have to understand is that we have to understand the evolution of the parent body itself because Ryugu is relatively recently formed. Mm. And now we have the material from Ryugu, but we have to also understand the past of Ryugu. So what, we, what I do is that uh, I performed impact simulations of Ryugu's parent body itself and then try to destroy Ryugu's parent body to form Ryugu. And then later, because uh, the parent body is uh, disrupted into small pieces, when one of which is uh, Ryugu. And the next question is that the, one of the fragments needs to be scattered close to the Earth's orbit. So I do, I repeat, I, I, so I do two simulations. One is the impact simulations. The other is I try to understand the orbital evolution of the fragments. You do these with very specific computer programs? Uh, okay, in our field, there is no uh, software that is built. So I my, myself uh, try to develop some numerical simulation codes with oh, some wow. colleagues, yeah. So for impact simulations, we have to uh, understand, okay, let's say for example, how the temperature increases uh, when the impact occurs. So it's kind of thermodynamics. So to build impact uh, simulation code, we have to understand uh, thermodynamics. And in the case of orbital evolution of the fragments, uh, we need to understand dynamics, or you know, uh, so so uh, yeah, dynamics to try to understand the gravity effect or you know some uh, uh, non-gravitational effects. So it becomes quite a complicated program then that you have to put together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we need a good computer. <laughs> that's <laughs> definitely, yeah. Bef before we go on to the next mission, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Yugu was uh, supposedly relatively recently formed. What is recently in this case? Is this hundreds of thousands of years or, or how long are we talking? Uh, it's a million years. A million years. A million years. years oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, but a million years is about... relatively recent. <laughs> Hello, this is Nikaido from the future. I just want to make a small correction here, uh, Ryuki informed me of afterwards. So the age of Ryugu's parent body formation is uh, billions of years old, and then the disruption uh, caused by the impact forming the debris, which became uh, Ryugu, is approximately... 100 million years old, not uh, 1 million. So it's an even larger recent amount of time. Sorry for the uh, slip of the tongue on our part. When we say 1 million here, just remember that that's actually 100 million years. 
Thank you. Yeah, because、uh, if you think about the solar system ways, which is like a、okay, you know, billion years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. This, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess in, in the、uh, large scale, yeah, a million years is, is quite recent. And how,、yeah. how do we know、um, that it's, it's roughly a million years, though? How did you, how do we find out this information? Ah, that's a very、uh, important question. So, So, we can think many ways, or we try to understand、uh, the age of the formation、uh, in many ways, let's say. So, first,、uh, we can understand from the theoretical side, for example, if、uh, the impact occurs very, very early, let's say, and then you have a very small fragment, and if you calculate dynamical evolutions, you can find it can quickly reach Earth, or it can. Go to other places, for example. So, in order to understand today's distribution of fragments, you need a certain timing that the fragments are formed. And then later, dynamic evolution takes place. Very you're, clear. You're, you're, are you calculating, I guess, their, their distances? Yeah,、um, so distances change、uh, as a function of time. <laughs> so, if the function of time is different, I mean, the time is different, starting time is different. You will have a different uh, distributions、mm-hmm. because the distribution is a function of times. I see. So does, does that mean、yeah. that we know roughly where the, the asteroid began, though? Yeah, that's,、okay. that's, cor- yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you're right. And then also,、uh, in order to depart from the original region, the original region is、uh, between Mars and Jupiter.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you need also a certain location there initially,、mm-hmm. which is a specific location related to the resonance with Jupiter. Maybe some of、uh, people do not、uh, familiar with the、uh, resonances. So let me briefly explain. Oh, yes, please. The, yeah, because,、uh, okay, let's say Earth is orbiting at, okay, what we say, one AU location from the, from the Sun. And this is an astronomical unit. The, yeah, astronomical the unit distance. One、yeah. Earth distance from the sun. Is, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, and then,、uh, of course, you know, Jupiter is not one AU, which is located much farther from Earth.、Mm-hmm. And then around the sun, these、uh, planetary bodies orbit. But from the Keplerian law, if you are close to the sun, the orbits, Or the orbital velocity of the planet becomes faster, or orbital period is becomes、uh, smaller.、Mm-hmm. Okay. And at the location of the Earth,、uh, it takes one year to rotate around the Sun. So this is one year.、Mm-hmm. But in the case of Jupiter, it takes much longer time. I don't remember how, we, how many years, but、mm-hmm. it's definitely longer than one year、okay. Okay, to rotate around the Sun. And then let's come back to resonance. Resonance is that some uh, specific uh, uh, relative period between two bodies. For example, if we say two to one resonances, let's say、uh, some bodies orbit twice during the Earth's orbit one time. So this is a relationship specific.、Uh, Okay, peer, period、uh, relationship, right? And in that specific location, we can have what we call resonances. And then at specific resonances locations, some special perturbation takes place. 
and then it can scatter very efficiently some asteroids to different locations. So let's come back to Ryugu. And what we thought is that Ryugu parent body starts close to the resonance point and the fragments are formed and some fragments reach some resonances. And then at those resonances, the fragments are scattered close to earth. This is what we thought the evolution, dynamic evolution of fragments of uh, parental Yugu. And from all this, that helps us determine the the initial point of Yugu. Yeah. And ultimately the the age of Yugu as well. Of the asteroid. Right, right. Yugu. That's right. That this is one way to try to understand the age of Yugu. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The other the other ways are more straightforward and more, I mean, direct answer. Oh, there's different but, uh, ways as well. Yeah, yeah. That was a theoretical side, so which is my side. <laughs> but the other side is that uh, the reason why we do planetary explorations or planetary missions because we will uh, really get samples. It's a direct evidence, mm -hmm. and by analyzing the sample, we can understand how long the fragments are under the sun radiations. Ah, so you can you we can... have a specific uh, analy uh, I mean analysis to mm -hmm. understand how long uh, the fragments are under the solar radiations. It can give us a direct answer how long the, in the space that Ryugu is floating after frag we would, fragmentations. Yeah, we need to actually obtain the sample to uh, to get this answer then, right? Yeah. Okay, so mostly for the, the theoretical physics, uh, physics side, it would be using the uh, resonance and uh, determining the location. Okay, mm -hmm. okay, thank you. It's, uh, it does sound a little bit complicated, but I think yeah. I have a general <laughs> understanding of what's going Sorry on. Sorry for that, yeah. No, no, all right. Uh, are, are we going in order of, of the missions that you were involved with? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, chronologically, if you did uh, Cassini and then Hayabusa 2, or if you uh, had something in between those before your next mission? Uh, or maybe so, you're involved uh, with a lot of missions at the same time. I'm... Right, right. But initially <laughs> it was Cassini yeah. and then uh, Hayabusa 2, because this is current uh, missions. Cassini yeah. already finalized. And then uh, the next mission will be uh, MMX. MMX. I'm already involved, but it's not launched yet. Okay, and when, yeah. uh, when do we expect that to be launched? So MMX, uh, Martian Moon Exploration Mission, uh, is expected to be launched in 2024. So let's say in two years, almost very, very close, getting close. And uh, what, are you, what are you doing on the MMX mission? So thanks for asking. So in the case of MMX, it's, it, it is a bit different from the case of Cassini and Hayabusa 2 missions. The reason is the following, because uh, when I already, uh, when I joined uh, Cassini and uh, Hayabusa 2 missions, the mission is already launched, okay? And then they already had informations, observations, let's say, or also samples today for Hayabusa 2 missions. So my job was from the sample or from the observations by Cassini, there's already, already, there's already fact. So my job is to try to understand the fact or to try to explain the fact what yes. we found. Mm -hmm. But in the case of MMX, we still do not launch. 
So that's why my job is try to, uh, let's say, maximize the potential science that MMS can do. So I need to some prediction. I need to do some predictions from theoretical side for future missions, what we can do by this MMX mission. You make assumptions about, I, I guess, what samples that we would want to have to figure out mm-hmm. certain uh, useful information for us to have uh, moving forward then. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So maybe if I say some examples, for example, yes. uh, so MMX, the target is uh, Phobos. Phobos is uh, small moons around Mars. And then the question is how the moons are formed around Mars itself. Mm-hmm. But still, we do not have any good uh, real evidences because nobody has ever gone there. And then we have uh, some observations, but it's not really detailed yet. So uh, what do I have to do is that I have to try to uh, come up with some ideas of how we can form Phobos. And also there's another moon, Deimos. So Phobos, Deimos formations. And today, uh, okay, or historically speaking, uh, back in, let's say, uh, 70th, some people proposed that Phobos and Deimos are formed by capturing asteroids. The reason is that if we look at the surface by observations, it looks like uh, the color spectral feature is looks like D-type asteroids. And w- what, so, is, what is this, sorry, what is the D-type asteroid? Okay, D-type asteroid is uh, what we can find uh, among asteroid region, main asteroid regions. And uh, it's relatively very far uh, or the far end of the uh, main belt asteroid. And we thought that asteroids, that kind of asteroids, contain uh, many, uh, let's say, organics, or the minerals, or water as well. And what we thought is that that kind of D-type or dark asteroid is captured by Mars, and it became Phobos and Deimos. But this is from the observational um, hint. And when you say captured by Mars, you mean so, uh, sort of like captured by the gravitational force yeah, right, and right. Uh, formed as a, a, a disk? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in this case, there is no disk. It's just captured. Oh, it's just captured. any fragmentation. So it's really, relatively speaking, it's uh, captured by the gravity of Mars. Oh. Mm. So you're, you are, I guess, really working backwards not necessarily backwards, but very different uh, approach that you had on Cassidy and Hayabusa 2 uh, for the MMX mission, where you are sort of coming up with the the theories of how things are actually completed. And then you are looking for, I guess, to get the, the best evidence to either prove or disprove mm-hmm. uh, these theories. Right. And, and if I keep uh, uh, explaining... So there is a second idea to from Phobos and Demos that was recently uh, proposed. And then also I also propose. So the one, first idea is, as I said, it's capture. The second idea is, again, uh, the formation by giant impacts on Mars. Because if we look at the surface of Mars, we have a big basin on the northern hemisphere of Mars, actually. This is called the Borealis Basin. 
And then this could be formed a giant impact because it's a, a very huge basin on the Mars, on the Mars surface. So this is a, could be the evidence of the impact. Okay. So a, another sort of planet-sized uh, uh, or planet or something may have hit Mars in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, in the case of uh, the Borealis, for, Borealis Basin forming impact, it's not really planet size, but still uh, it's, uh, let's say, one-tenth of the size of Mars. Okay, that's, that's still quite area. massive. Yeah. Still, still big, yeah, yeah, still big, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And then what we do, also my, myself did, is that uh, we perform impact simulations to form that basin. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that not only it forms the basin, there are a lot of debris is formed orbiting around Mars. So it forms a debris disk around Mars. And then if we perform another simulations, which is a disk operations, we found that this debris disk can form Phobos and Deimos. From your simulations, there's quite a bit of, I guess, evidence or, or at least correlation that shows that this is a very strong theory then as, as to where these uh, the moons came from. Yeah, so now we have uh, two ideas. One is a capture, and the mm -hmm. other is giant impact origins. But we don't know which one is correct. From theoretical side, we proposed two ideas. Okay, That's these, why we need yeah. MMX now. Because MMX is going to get a real sample from Phobos itself. And after it brings back to Earth, we analyze. And for example, let's say if the sample contains some Martian materials mm -hmm. in the sample, that could be a good evidence that the moon formed by giant impact because giant, when giant impact occurs, some Mars materials are also uh, ejected as a debris disk and then it forms the moons. Yeah, so that's why uh, what my job is that before the mission goes, I try to uh, propose what information we should look at by sample. So in, the case, in this case, uh, I would say that uh, we have to try to find if there is any Martian materials within the sample or not. And if you did find uh, Martian materials, then this would put a lot of weight between the, the theory of the giant impact being the formation of the moon. Yeah, I think so, yeah. That's uh, that's quite interesting. I, I guess this is going to be one of the major things that you're hoping to accomplish with the MMX mission. Mm -hmm. All right, that's uh, that sounds great. I mean, you you are working with a, a lot of very interesting sounding missions going on. Mm -hmm. I, I think you had you were involved with uh, a couple more. Even it's, you sound like quite a busy right. person. Though, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So, yeah, if I say I also work uh, on uh, Baby Colombo missions, it's a ESA mission, European Agency missions, but also JAXA, Japanese uh, Space Agency, collaborated. So it's between uh, the European Space Agency and the Japanese uh, Space Agency then? Yeah, right. So Baby Colombo mission is uh, the one that goes to find Mercury. It's going to Mercury. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a very, very also important mission because uh, as maybe most of people uh, know that Mercury is the innermost planet in the solar system. Mm -hmm. But it's still very, very mystery there because uh, Mercury is a, uh, small compared to Earth and Venus. 
and then it's under uh, very strong radiations from the mm-hmm. sun because it's very close to the sun and its core core is uh, very very huge it is estimated at this moment like uh, let's say 70 percent of its mass while the earth's case the other planetary terrestrial planet's case it's only 20 percent quite a difference yeah, there is a very huge core inside, you know, but mm-hmm. we don't know how that kind of planets are formed. And we still do not have any good uh, coverage of the you know, observations for Mercury. We have uh, uh, some uh, fractions already covered by previous missions, but uh, still not the global coverage is not achieved. So uh, Baby Colombo will uh, try to understand the whole global picture of mercury itself so i guess we're looking to find out a lot of things uh from the baby Colombo mission then yeah i guess so uh, nobody has seen uh you know, mercury in detail so mm-hmm. in the near future uh, we will have a good picture of mercury Finally. when is uh when is the baby Colombo going to be launched it's already launched so oh, I it's, didn't it's, already launched. it's already launched but uh, it's still on the way to there Oh yes, yes. And then the expected date to arrive, uh, arrival date to Mercury is, uh, if everything goes well, I think it's 2025 around. 2025. So it takes quite a quite a while to get there. Yeah, yeah, it's very far from Earth. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, are you, I guess, doing a similar work uh, to the MMX mission where you are trying to, you know, maximize the sample return by figuring out what kind of samples we would want and what we want to learn from them before we actually collect them? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So in the case of uh, Baby Colombo, we do not uh, have a sample return. We will okay. go there and then we will orbit around the Mercury, and then, but we will detail uh, observation. observation. Okay. So it's an uh, observational mission. Yeah, observational missions. But still, the, what, what I have to do is the same. Mm-hmm. So some people in the, in the mission are, let's say, geologists. And also, we have a lot of volcanic activities on Mercury. So some of them are specialists of uh, volcanics. But in my case, uh, I have to uh, maximize science in plant formations. So always I have to think about uh, how the solar system are formed. And then again, the mercury would be very important to understand that question because mercury is an enormous planet. So we will, that means that we will understand the inner boundary of the solar system formation for the planets. You're hoping that, uh, uh, I guess, a lot of these observations will help us understand the, mm-hmm. the formation even further. Yeah, I, it's kind of amazing how we've already, uh, I, I guess, discovered the existence of exoplanets. Well, we still mm-hmm. don't know so very much about uh, even the surrounding <laughs> planets, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Four missions, three missions that you're you're still uh, that are still currently <laughs> ongoing that you're a part of, and uh, are right. there even more missions that you're you're uh, actually taking part of? <laughs> Okay, so let's say lastly, I'd like to talk about uh, opens. Opens, okay. Yeah. Is this is open stand for but something? Still open, it, opens is kind of an unofficial project so far. So it's not 
I mean, uh, literally open yet. Okay. I, yeah, I hope uh, it should be open in the near future. So say Just, a, uh, a little bit secretive still? Yeah, right. But uh, let me uh, briefly talk about that from science side. Okay, yes, because please. It's very interesting. Let's explain open. So open stands for uh, outer planet exploration by a novel micro spacecraft. It sounds very engineering, right? <laughs> it does, yes. Yeah, actually, this is uh, motivated by engineering side. Okay, okay. Let me uh, briefly explain, but not uh, maybe detailed. But you can ask me if you are interested in other questions. So, uh, JAXA so mm -hmm. far uh, never go to outer solar system by own spacecraft. Okay, for example, if we look at NASA or ESA, European Agency, NASA, for example, went to Saturn by Cassini, obviously. And the ESA also, they went to uh, outer solar system. But JAXA is great uh, in terms of uh, asteroid missions. We did uh, succeed uh, to some mission from asteroids. So it's uh, amazing. But so far, we haven't uh, gone to outer solar system. So Jupiter so and beyond. Why, yes. Yeah, Jupiter beyond the air. So that's why uh, from engineering side, JAXA wants to go to the outer solar system. This is a technological challenging, but uh, this would be very important to, to make JAXA, uh, you know, I mean, broaden. So this is okay from the motivation is from engineering side, but also we need a science because uh, you cannot say just, uh, okay, I'm going to launch some spacecraft to outer solar system. I would be but an, I don't, sort but of an cannot, expensive but you, uh, test there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, but if you say, but I don't do anything, something like that, <laughs> you cannot say that. Yeah, so yes. you need a good science together. Definitely, yes. Because JAXA yeah, needs uh, some budget, but in order to have budget, you need to also claim some good science, of course. So that's why this is my job to uh, join Opens to have uh, good science. Hopefully, hopefully I do good. And you would be looking, I, I guess in your case, it would be looking for sort of any information that you could use to figure out the formation of planets in more detail? Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, in the case of Opens, uh, Still, we are discussing what target is we good for the first uh, mission, okay? Mm -hmm. But uh, now uh, we are thinking Jupiter or Saturn is good. Mm -hmm. And especially if we go there, we try to see some rings or moons again, mm -hmm. but uh, this time uh, in more details by uh, compared to, for example, let's say Cassini. Cassini did a really great job. But thanks to Cassini, uh, we have now uh, new questions that we should answer next after Cassini. So and then in order to answer that new questions, I think opens could be a good you know, mission. So that's why I'm trying to push the opens to be uh, offshore uh, missions. There's currently no, no satellites or spacecrafts around uh, Saturn or anything beyond? I, I think there's uh, something we, still around Jupiter, is that correct? Right, we have, yeah, around Jupiter's. And we have other uh, 
planned missions uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Saturn. Okay. But each mission has uh, each individual purpose. Mm-hmm. And our opens has also different uh, scope for the science. So you can't just have a, a single uh, spacecraft around the planet and, and gather all the information about <laughs> that you want for each yeah. specific area. Then. That's the difficulty of planetary explorations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some, uh, each mission is uh, specialized to do some specific science. Are you also considering uh, Uranus and Neptune as possible targets, or is it either Jupiter or Saturn? Yeah, so Uranus and Neptune are very mysterious, and um, uh, even compared to Saturn and Jupiter, they mm-hmm. are not studied yeah. well, details. So we want to go there, and then every uh, space agency, I think, want to go there. <laughs> but uh, since its distance is very, very far, if the distance becomes larger and larger, you need uh, more power, mm-hmm. and then you have a... Uh, you need to have a more, I mean, stabilized uh, orbits. I mean, so the difficulty becomes larger. Yes, I guess. Uh, but it definitely in the future missions from uh, some agency, from some agencies. I hope JAXA would be the one <laughs> first. <laughs> I, I, I guess we'll see what happens. There would be, yeah, it would be interesting to get something uh, that far out, especially yeah, because right. those those two are so mysterious things i guess beyond uh, mm. beyond saturn are almost yeah. completely unknown really so right but uh, but yeah as we discussed you know even even the uh, inner solar system planets like uh, mars and mercury and venus we there's still yeah. so much that we don't know about those so right i guess any target is uh, is definitely still worth studying that's true we have many targets that need to go <laughs> So yeah, do you, it sounds like you are uh, involved in a lot of very interesting and very important missions. And uh, <laughs> I'm kind of wondering how you have time to do all of these. Uh, I, I suppose it's quite time consuming everything that you're doing. Is that correct? That's true. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm always, always uh, trying to find out how I can manage the time very efficiently. <laughs> uh, you know, it's difficult. So yeah, time time management, I guess, is a very important skill for uh, theoretical astrophysicists. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's an interesting point, yeah. yeah. I guess but before we go on, I, I, I do want to talk about uh, your papers that uh, came up earlier. But um, before that, yeah. I, I would like to sort of just quickly get into, I guess, your uh, career and, and uh, motivation. We mentioned that you are an ITYF, which is uh, quite a prestigious uh, position at, at JAXA. It's the equivalent of an associate professor, uh, mm-hmm. as JAXA defines it. And I, I think you were you were hired, what, roughly three years ago now by JAXA in this position? Yeah, well, now uh, two and a half years. Okay. And... Mm-hmm. I, I've noticed the the ITYF since it's the international top young fellow generally seems to go to people with non-Japanese citizenships. But um, uh-huh. so I, I kind <laughs> of <laughs> I um, in, unless I'm mistaken, I think you are you're a Japanese citizen. You were born in in Japan. Yeah, uh, this clarifications. Yeah, I'm a Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can yeah, I'm we? Born in Japan. Can we, uh, I guess, briefly go over your um, career history, maybe where you were born, where you went to uh, university, 
what you studied and, uh, you know, ultimately why you decided to apply for this uh, international top young fellow position at JAXA. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm born in Osaka in Japan. Osaka is uh, the city uh, west side in Japan. Always and then always uh, Osaka compete with uh, Tokyo, uh, even though Osaka is uh, smaller than Tokyo. But it's a big city in the west side. And then I grew up there. And uh, I went to uh, university, uh, Kobe University. Kobe University. Yeah. And the reason quite, uh, why it's quite chose, a good uh, university. See. <laughs> yeah, in West Side, I think it's good because, uh, again, you know, it's kind of a joke, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, West Side people, let's say Osaka people, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, try to fight with Tokyo people. <laughs> and then. <laughs> At that time, when I was uh, young, uh, I was the same. I was like that. So I didn't want to go to Tokyo. Tokyo has a good universities. But in West Side, uh, Kobe University is good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was, uh, at that time, it was very rare. But we had, at Kobe University, planetary science department. So many universities have a physics department. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, let's say, or astrophysics department but uh, in japan at that time we didn't have a lot of planetary science department so this is a very rare thing to find in the, in the yeah. university so just to clarify so astrophysics department uh, in general do let's say like uh, black holes or you know big bangs or this kind of stuff it's not really planet but in planetary science the target is a planet so mm-hmm. some people do theory like me today, or some people do observations to find a new planet or new asteroids. And some people do experiments in the laboratory, like a chemical experiments or let's say impact experiments in the laboratory. Yeah, so the target is a planet. And then I wanted to do a planet. So that's why I chose uh, Kobe University. Luckily, Kobe University has that uh, uh, department. Why Why were you interested in planets at the time? Was there some specific uh, motivation behind this? Or? Right. So if I, uh, you know, think uh, back in time, that time, I'm, I was not sure if I had a really clear answer at the time, but I thought I, I remember I thought uh, because a planet is more real to me at the time. <laughs> Okay. The yeah, big yeah, one that, is very interesting. I, yeah, I still like uh, galaxy stuff as a physics. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, galaxy or big one or universe was too far from me at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I could imagine Mars or the, the moon, Luna, Luna stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought I want to, I mean, uh, get involved in planets. So at that time, I didn't know about exoplanets, no, but uh, still uh, solar system planets were very, very mysterious, even today. So and then I was uh, feeling very real to them. So you, you studied at uh, Kobe University for how many years? Right. So I joined uh, since the uh, undergraduate. So, so four years, basically. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but during uh, four years, I took a break one year and uh, I went to the US and Canada 
Right, just but it's just to study first English and also try to see other countries. Because at that time, even I'm very interested in planets, I was not sure if I do, I'm a researcher in the future. Or you, you felt that you needed to, to, I guess, study English and get more, I guess, familiar with other countries as well for, mm -hmm. for your work or, or just in, in general? For general, actually, in that time, I wanted to see other countries. How did you, uh, how did you like uh, living in, in, I guess you lived in sort of part-time American Canada for uh, mm -hmm. about a year? Yeah. Uh, in total a year, yes. Uh, what were uh, you we, doing while you were there? Were you working or just uh, <laughs> just hanging out? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I went to Canada first. Mm -hmm. And then uh, because at that time I couldn't speak English at all. And that was my first like, uh, you know, living outside Japan. So I basically go to some uh, English school there and in Calgary actually in, in Canada. But it was very, uh, I don't know if I say small town, but uh, compared to, let's say, other big cities like uh, Toronto, okay, I think yeah. Calgary is uh, smaller. And then a lot of mountains uh, and the nature. Mm -hmm. So I studied uh, English, uh, very focused. And I met uh, many Canadian people and uh, people from other countries because uh, uh, Calgary at that time uh, didn't have a lot of uh, let's say Japanese around me. So it was a very good experience for me. Oh, in a way you were, you were forced to learn English because you, right, you couldn't right. really use Japanese. It's a, I mean, yeah. it's a great immersion technique there. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, it was good for me. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you went to America after that? Yeah, I went to America after that. And, and then, uh, because I'm young, uh, I wanted to see a big city, New York, after Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, in New York, uh, but you know, New York is uh, it's a bit tough compared to Calgary because it's a very busy city and it's mm -hmm. expensive. So uh, I had to, I mean, work myself to live there. Awesome. Yeah. What did you do at the time? So uh, I did a kind of a bartender there at oh. a bar. <laughs> Even though I didn't know how to do it, <laughs> but I asked them to, you know, if they can hire me. And but again, I I cannot do any good bartender job, so I mainly serve some beers to them. <laughs> uh, but it was funny because uh, some uh, okay because in New York uh, they gave us a lot of tips sometimes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? But it was good experience. To you know, work with uh, uh, people from uh, different backgrounds, I guess. Hmm. So I guess that was a, a pretty good experience for you then, in the in the long run. Mm. And uh, after after that, you came back to Japan to resume your studies. Yeah, but yeah, right. But before going back to uh, Japan, I went travel to uh, Central and South America. Oh. You're about, uh, really traveling months. all over the place. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing there? Oh, I just traveled there. Oh, just like traveling. Yeah, keep traveling. Uh, I just uh, had a uh, one you know, small bag, and then traveled for months. And then after that, I came back to Japan. And you went back to um, to Kobe University at the time, or? Right. Right. 
But uh, the experience uh, in Canada, US, and South America, and mm -hmm. Central America, I think it changed me a bit because the study itself was very interesting uh, in Kobe University, and it was a good environment. But uh, I started to think, uh, I mean, going to other countries for study as well. And then, uh, and okay, and after graduation of uh, undergraduate school, and I went to master degree in Kobe University. But since I became a master student, there was a chance to go to uh, the international conferences, let's say one or two times a year. And then for the first time uh, by that, uh, I met uh, people, foreign researchers actually. And then I discussed with them. Before that, I, know I knew their names only by papers that I can find on the internet, <laughs> right? But uh, at the international conferences, I met uh, the real person and, uh, and then discussion was very interesting. And just reading papers, uh, some of some things, something you cannot realize, but by direct discussion in person, you can find a new idea or you can have a new collaboration there. You found it very important or very helpful to actually be able to meet the people uh, right. who, who were, I guess, working on very similar subjects to you, yourself. Yes. And then that was a trigger to go to other I mean, institute uh, from Kobe University. So I was still a student at Kobe University, but I decided to uh, join uh program uh, uh university of paris so i university met a french paris. yeah french researcher french professor at the conference and then we had the uh, same interest and that was a cassini actually oh yeah satan's rings and satan's moons and then his name is sebastian chanoz professor sebastian chanoz uh, at the university of paris or ipcp and that was great I mean, opportunity for me. And then he invited me to come to Paris if I'm a student. And then I accepted the offer. And then I went to Paris. Uh, so during the rest of my master's degree and PhD there. Oh, so you, you spent quite a few years in Paris. Then. Right, right. So in total of three years. Uh, did you get by in Paris using mostly English or did you have to learn French as well? <laughs> yeah, that's a very, you know, uh, maybe you can imagine that French people always speak French yeah, with French colleagues. I would, I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but uh, they really like French. So I needed to learn some French, but uh, basically it's English. Yeah. So thanks to them, yeah. Okay, so well, you... sometimes uh, their discussion is very heated up. <laughs> they study <laughs> speak French. <laughs> I see, I see. So, well, you were at the University of Paris. You mm -hmm. you uh, were involved with the Cassini spacecraft that we that we talked about earlier. Right. So, luckily for me, uh, both uh, professors are at Kobe University and uh, IBZP, University of Paris. Both of them uh, joined the Cassini missions. So that's why. Uh, you know, naturally, I also joined the Cassini, mm. thanks to them, because they're my supervisors. 
And what did you do after the uh, after your time at the University of Paris and and on the Cassini spacecraft project? So after uh, Paris, I after I got a PhD from uh, I mean University of Paris and then Kobe University because I was both student there. Oh, so they 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 both gave you a, a PhD. How does how does that work? Uh, I'm not sure. It's kind of a double degree. We call it double degree. Oh wow! But uh, yeah. But uh, not really officially. I did not receive a doctoral degree from University of Paris. I because okay, they combined the program. Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks to them, they and I mean, how do you say they collaborate? Two universities, I mean, make some agreements mm -hmm. because I went to University of Paris while I'm a student at Kobe University. So two universities discussed and then. They agree to each other that uh, they will give uh, a single doctor degrees. As a result, I studied there. I see. So yeah. Anyway, so and after I got uh, my PhD, uh, I went back to uh, Japan. But this time, it's not anymore student as a, a postdoc. My first experience of postdoc, and then that was at. Uh, uh, Tokyo Institute of Technology, and inside Tokyo Tech Institute of Technology, uh, there is an institute or research institute called ELUSI, Earth Life Science Institute. It, it is within the Tokyo Tech. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think ELSI is also quite a, uh, at least in Japan, a well-known science organization. Right, and ELUSI is very, very, I think, unique uh, in Japan because uh, uh, inside LC, uh, the English is a common language. Oh. So even the staff, not only researchers, but the, even the staff speak English regularly. And the emails are in English. And, and I don't know the percentage, but uh, let's say, let's say half, half of the researchers are foreign researchers. So even I came back to Japan uh, inside the LC, it's very international. It's I think it's very rare in Japan. Uh, yes, I mean, there's I, I don't think there's a lot of organizations that really <laughs> that, that really strive to yeah, do that. Yeah, especially in Japan. You know. Yeah, yeah. And were you continuing your uh, studies on on the Cassini uh, mission while you were at LC? Or were yes, you doing I my, I kept doing the Cassini stuff, but uh, at the same time uh, in Japan, uh, the MMX project is launched. Oh. So it's not, uh, yeah, it's, the spacecraft is not launched, but the project itself is started yes. within Japan. And then uh, because I had experience working uh, with uh, missions uh, in Cassini, I decided to also join uh, MMX in Japan because I'm, more, I'm already in Japan. Mm -hmm. And also Hayabusa too. I guess you, you were at LC. The next step was JAXA? Or was there something right. in between? Right. So while you were no, at... there's no between. Yeah. Okay. While you were at uh, LC, did, did was it the end of your contract, or were you just interested in JAXA and decided okay. to apply? Okay. So I moved to JAXA uh, two and a half years ago, mm -hmm. and at that time I still had some contrast left, contract left at LC. Mm -hmm. But I yeah I decided to move to JAXA. The reason is that uh, so LC is a great research institute, and still now I have uh, some affiliation there. 
as a research affiliate. So I have many, many collaborations with LC people. But uh, what I had interest there is that, uh, so JAXA is basically, it's actually engineering institute. It's not really a research institute compared to university. Okay. So there are many, many engineers in JAXA. And then there are many, uh, there are not really a lot of uh, researchers who do planet formation, what I'm interested in. But again, uh, planetary missions aims to understand the solar system evolutions. So that is a plant formations. So they need it. But then we didn't have people there in JAXA. And then uh, the vice president, the vice president of JAXA, Fujimoto-san. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then he uh, talked to me about the importance of science in planetary missions. I knew some of, I knew kind of that because I already joined Kashimi. But in JAXA, again, we didn't have a lot of scientists who does uh, planetary plant formation. So that's why I thought it's very interesting to JAXA and then staying very close to engineers to, I mean, talk about the importance of uh, plant formation. And then again, in order to achieve a specific science, we need a specific design of a spacecraft and orbits of a spacecraft. So that's why I think a daily discussion between engineers and the scientists is very important. And that's why I think in order to make it happen, I moved to, from LC to JAXA. And you, did you apply specifically for the, uh, the ITYF position? Right. So at that time, uh, there was a call of ITYF. And then uh, ITYF is very uh, special, I would say very special, let's say, call because uh, we can very focus on what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course, there are other good positions, let's say like a project scientist. But project scientist is basically hired by project. So once you join JAXA by project scientist, uh, normally you spend a lot of your time focusing on a single project because you are hired by that project. Whereas you have so many different missions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and in the case of ITY, if, uh, mm-hmm. I can join many missions freely, and also, I, I can do my own research. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought ITYF is a good, I mean, opportunity to go to JAXA. When you said you talked to Vice President uh, Fujimoto-san, was that bef- before you applied or or Yeah, before I applied. Oh, so he's kind of headhunted you, you know, in a way, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I was interested in planetary missions and then not mm-hmm. so many... Japanese scientists who do plant formation. Uh, not always interested in that. So, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, we, uh, I mean, Fujimoto san is also an interesting uh, character. We should see if we can get him on the podcast someday. Yeah, too. that's great. Yeah, that would be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I, I did want to talk about uh, your papers as well. I know that uh, mm. you've got quite a busy schedule, but I guess right before we get into that, I uh, while we're on sort of your personal history, I, I just want to know mm-hmm. uh, 
do you, do you have any notable hobbies or, or things that you really like to do when you're not in the lab? You, I know you're very busy, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I mean, is, is yeah. there anything specifically that you, you really enjoy to do outside of the lab in your, in your personal life? Yeah, outside the lab, I think uh, what I want to do always uh, exercise. Exercise, <laughs> because, okay. Yeah, because uh, I mean physical exercise, mm -hmm. because uh, because I'm a theorist, mm -hmm. so I always sit on a chair and then I do computer simulations. But at the same time, what is this my idea? But uh, I think uh, I know, physical strength is also important for researchers. Mm -hmm. Because if you are not physically well, you cannot always focus on uh, some uh, stuff. So that's why uh, when I go outside lab, I try to do some running or playing football. Yeah, that's why I do as a hobby too. Just, just to clarify, football is is soccer. Football, uh, yeah, soccer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just I don't know who's who's listening from where. So okay, so soccer, soccer <laughs> football. Right. <laughs> yeah, soccer football. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's uh, interesting. You know, you know, soccer is very common even among uh, planetary scientists. Well, that's oh, what really? I found out. Yeah. It is, so is it because I, I the, the know, soccer uh, ball is kind of like a planet shaped. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know other research fields, but uh, talking about the planetary scientist, mm -hmm. because uh, if I go to, let's say, Paris, or if I go to, you know, America, even America, some people really like uh, playing uh, soccer, football. Mm -hmm. So I play with them, and then, and then, you know, we get to know each other. That's a good way to collaborate, actually. Oh, that's, uh, that's yeah. interesting. And it's it's nice to hear that uh, you know you're you have a lot of physical activities that you're you're also doing because I think there's mm. kind of a stereotype that uh, scientists mm -hmm. and researchers can often become really I guess physically unhealthy. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe planetary scientists are very I mean you know I mean outdoors I guess uh, they want to <laughs> go outside sometimes because to to see some planets you know uh, that that makes sense yeah yeah yeah. Some of them have to go to, you know, uh, Antarctica, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. not sure how much soccer you can play in Antarctica. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's that's interesting. Maybe maybe we should uh, do a game together sometime. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll work something out. So when it comes to uh, paper publications, I, I think that there's definitely sort of a quantity versus quality debate that uh, that goes on because mm -hmm. uh you know there's there are scientists who they will publish um you know i, I don't know 60 70 papers in a year maybe and then there's other scientists and and either of these you know the people who publish a lot of papers or or almost no papers they mm -hmm. both of them could be very skilled very smart mm -hmm. researchers but you know some researchers also uh, really struggled to get out, let's say, even one or two papers in, in a year. And mm. I, I think in terms of the sheer number of high-quality research papers, you put out quite a, a, a few, uh, and, and I, I guess, and are extraordinarily successful in, in that area. I was, I was kind of looking at the papers that you had uh, last year in 2021. I think you had maybe over a dozen and almost half of them were first author. 
So, sorry, this is kind of a long-winded question here, but there's a couple things that I wanted to ask uh, about this. One is, okay, the, the probably the more important question is how are you able to successfully get so many papers out within a year? Like, uh, I don't know, you have something like 12 or 14 or mm-hmm. last year. How, how are you able to do this when, uh, when I guess, other researchers have more difficulty, let's say? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a good point. And uh, I'd like to keep having the papers, my first of the papers. This is also what I need to do as a researcher. Mm-hmm. So I always try to find a good way to publish papers. So I'm, I don't say this is uh, the best answer. But what I uh, always uh, try to think is that, for example, uh, if you have some data, let's say, if you have some data, whatever is okay by experiments or by observations, in my case, like by numerical simulations, or let's say, uh, even if you do not have uh, a lot of time, you could have uh, some even smaller, you know, even smaller, you have uh, some amount of uh, data, right? And then, what I try to do is that if you have some data, I try to start writing paper with a small data. What I keep trying to do is that I keep fighting whatever it is, I mean. Okay, mm-hmm. if you, this is my opinion, but if you, or if I uh, try to write a paper after, only after you get plenty of data, I think you have to wait for a long time and then I don't know how much is enough to start paper. But if you think, even if you have a small results, you start writing uh, some paragraph on that small you know, results, I think you already finish a part of papers. And if you, if you obtain additional data, you again, write additional sentences. And if the previous paragraph is not really, you know, I mean, straightforward with the next paragraph, you have to start rewriting for, for the data. But by keeping this, I think, uh, I think you, already, you always have some uh, fractional papers already achieved. And then once I feel this is enough, I submit the papers. So in short, I think uh, what I try to do is that I always try to some paragraph with some more, even some more data or some more results. So, so you will probably have uh, several papers that are partially written that you're, you're working on at the same time then? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and another point is that I always try to do up to three projects as my first author papers. At the same time, that's, that's it's, quite very, a few. it's very tough. Yeah, it's <laughs> tough. But if you focus only one single project, mm-hmm. you can only achieve one. If you can try to do the three at the same time, mm-hmm. you may be able to write three papers at the same time. <laughs> I cannot do five at the same time, but uh, so, so don't I, don't go too far with this. But uh, yeah, and and I guess if if you do have three let's say one of them falls through for uh, mm-hmm. for whatever reason maybe somebody else publishes results before you or maybe it doesn't turn out to be a good paper you'll still have 
two others to fall back on. Yeah, so that's true, right? Seems like right. A, a, a pretty good setup. Yeah, and also I think this is a good way to, I mean, relax your I mean, ideas because you, if you always have one specific project, mm -hmm. you always focus on that project, which is good. But at the same time, you need to some uh, relax. I mean, uh, you need to relax. If you think different project, maybe that different project will give you another good idea to the other project. So there's, uh, I think, good, uh, you know, uh, interactions between different projects. Even it looks like different, but it could have, you know, common good ideas. It helps you find yeah. connections between uh, a lot yeah. of things and, and I guess really helps uh, refresh you when you've focused on this one area yeah. for too long. These right, are, that's these what are I wanted to points. say. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. Um, uh, I, I did have a few other questions. I know you're kind of, uh, we might be running out of time here. So mm -hmm. I just, uh, I, I wanted to really get into one specific paper that uh, I think you published uh, a few months ago. It was titled Searching for Life in Mars and Its Moons. And this was published in Science. And, and mm -hmm. I guess just for people who might not know, science and nature are sort of two of the, I, I guess, highest caliber or most prestigious and uh, well thought of science journals out mm -hmm. there. So, you know, getting pretty much getting anything published in science or, or nature, or there's, you know, there's a few other very high caliber uh, science journals as well, of course, but uh, anything published in these is in itself a huge accomplishment for most people. And I think you had, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how many, how many papers you've had published in science and nature, but uh, I, I think mm -hmm. as first author, you've had at least three, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe more. And uh, anyway, this, sorry, this uh, specific paper that I mentioned, uh, the searching for life in Mars and its moons, I understand this is supposedly the first time that this uh, science, this very prestigious journal has ever published a paper regarding life on other planets. Mm. Um, is, is this correct? And yeah, can you, okay. Sorry, right. can you, can you uh, I guess, first of all, briefly explain the, the contents of this paper, like what it goes over? Mm. Yeah, so before that, I want to say about this paper. So even this is uh, my first author paper, mm -hmm. But the most importantly, or very importantly, I think this is the, I mean, the result of the community. Okay, mm -hmm. let me let me explain. So uh, the paper is about our Mars system, actually. Okay, because uh, uh, not only uh, NASA, uh, the other institutes, for example, JAXA as well. Uh, we have MMX to go to Mars and Moon, and then we try to get samples, and also Mars itself. Uh, we have a Perseverance mission by NASA. They are trying to get sample from uh, Mars itself. Okay. And then what is the biggest goal uh, from Mars is that we try to understand the existence of life beyond Earth, right? And then uh, let's say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we didn't have any good uh, missions to Mars. Of course, we do have our missions, but not like today. And then uh, maybe uh, most of the people uh, think uh, uh, if you talk about life, 
it's kind of a scientific uh, uh, science fiction, okay, science science fiction I, stuff. I think it's it's still regarded in that way, yeah. Yeah, it's still regarded that way. But now, uh, so Perseverance, a good rover, mm-hmm. by NASA and MMX, they will, for the first place, will bring samples from Mars itself. This is very different from previous, because before we cannot have any direct sample from Mars. But now we have a really chance to have samples uh, in our hand in the near future, say in 10 years, within 10 years. And if you can analyze directly samples, we can potentially find really the evidence of life on the sample. So that's why uh, now really good time to test if talking about life beyond Earth is just, uh, you know, science uh, fiction stuff or real. That's the base of this paper. And now uh, what uh, we wrote uh, in science paper is that because a lot of impact occurs on Mars during the history of Mars, and each impact can eject some materials from the surface of Mars. And then, and since Phobos, the target of MMX, is orbiting very, very close to Mars, the ejector coming from the surface of Mars can deliver to Phobos surface. And MMX will go to Phobos and then we will collect some sample from Phobos. That means even JAXA MMX do not go to Mars itself. We thought or we calculated that MMX can collect some Martian materials from the surface of Phobos. And then by analyzing that direct sample on the Earth, we could really find the evidence of uh, Martian life or the evidence of uh, the activity of uh, Martian life, okay? So I think that's why I say uh, this is not uh, my result. This is a community results. So now uh, in reality, we can try to uh, check or test the idea of having life beyond Earth. That's why I think the science, science journals, also accepted this uh, great era to directly check the you know, possibility. That's why I think they can put uh, some, uh, uh, this kind of uh, science papers for the first place talking about life. We expect to see more papers talking about possible life on other planets in the near future, do you think? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure of that because, okay, because I think that, that this is the reason why planetary mission is very important because without having any direct evidence, you could be always just, uh, you know, scientific uh, science fictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, le- let's talk about uh, Saturns again, because uh, around uh, Saturn, we have Enceladus. And again, inside there is uh, uh, internal oceans. Mm-hmm. And this could have a, a good uh, like environment that can harbor life there. And now... Uh, we have some missions uh, by NASA, for example, that goes to the plume, plume science. And then they can go, uh, some small robots can go deep inside the ocean and try to see the inside of the oceans. So if it happens, I think uh, we can, you know, really talk about the life beyond Earth. So the mission is very important to make it, you know, happens or to check the reality.
some exciting things will be coming in the near future then. Yeah. I know a, a lot of people who are probably listening to this uh, um, podcast, they might not uh, have the, the uh, resources or an organization behind them, or, uh, you know, maybe they're still studying or, or whatever. I, uh, I kind of want to ask you if you had any resources or for or tools for people who might be interested in theoretical astrophysics or, you know, just uh, researching uh, planet formation and space in general. I, I'm not sure if there is anything that, you know, just people outside of, of the field can use. I mean, it, it could be it could be anything really. If you have a, a computer program or or a uh, even a, a book or an app to recommend, or or even I, I know I've been in your office before, and I see you have uh, you're often using giant whiteboards on the wall with uh, very difficult looking <laughs> calculations written on them. Right. Uh, you know, I'm maybe yeah, even if even recommending a whiteboard if that's something that you think really helps people. You know, if if you have anything that uh, you think people who are interested in, in your field could uh, potentially use, you know, for studying or learning or, or researching? Well, okay. So I'm not sure if this answer is what you want to hear, but uh, I would say that, okay, I'm doing a theory and I'm doing a, a lot of computer simulations. Mm-hmm. In that case, what you need is two. One is uh, you have to understand the physics or chemistry. So, but the other is the computers. If you have both, you can perform your own numerical simulations. And this is how uh, theorists like me do for the research. But I want to say that uh, I think uh, some people are very interested in theory, but I think in more general way, I guess, uh, also me, the motivation is not, okay, let's say my motivation is not to do theoretical studies. I'm not really like physics. Okay, I, I do physics, but I won't say I like physics or mathematics. It's a kind of a tool. Okay. Uh, the motivation is I try to understand how the solar system evolves and then what other uh, environment in other planets or asteroids or moons. That's what I want to know, okay? The way to do it is just, uh, in my case, the theory or numerical simulations. But since I joined JAXA, I felt the importance of uh, planetary explorations, uh, you know, and it's the importance is becoming larger and larger every day. And then to achieve planetary explorations, uh, you need engineers, and also you need a theory and you need observations. So everything is needed. So that's why if you're interested in planetary science in general, uh, you do not need to limit yourself to uh, theory. So I think you can find your own way, let's say by studying uh, some engineering or some, you can also try to uh, do that by observations or experiments. I think whatever you do, I think it goes to planetary science. So this is what I want to say. So really, really having a, a broad range of knowledge uh, mm-hmm. is important. And... Yeah. 
And now astrobiology is also important. Uh, let's say 10 years ago, we didn't have any astrobiology. Mm-hmm. But now astrobiology is very important to understand li- life on Mars and life in Enceladus, you know. I guess, that, yeah, going forward, this sounds like it will be a, a very important field in uh, studying yeah. space. Yeah. All right, though, thank you. I'm, I, I have uh, a couple final questions if you still have time, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, please, uh... <laughs> One is uh, a hypothetical question I, I ask uh, all the guests at the end is, um, I know the, the ITYF budget is, is not, so sh- not too shabby, but uh, let's say that you yeah. suddenly had a huge near unlimited budget. You know, all the billionaires of the world just decided we want to fund Yuki Hyodo's research and you get to choose what research that you want to do. What would you spend that on? What, what project would you like to do? And this could be either an existing project or sort of a new project in your field. Well, if I have ultimate budget, uh, <laughs> the ultimate budget, okay, myself, yes. uh, <laughs> I will uh, make a new project. But this is again about the planetary explorations, because I myself uh, actually do not need a lot of uh, budget. Because I, if I have a uh, good computers, mm-hmm. and then physics or chemistry, that's it. I do not do experiments, so I don't spend a lot of money in my with my research. Mm-hmm. But uh, since I want to have a project, so the project is uh, I want to sample return from outer solar systems. Nobody has done yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, we will have a sample from Mars, but we will never so far have any plan to have samples from, let's say, Saturn or Jupiter. Mm-hmm. And since my starting point of this research activity is uh, NASA Cassini, and what Cassini found is that rings of Saturn is mostly made of water ice. Okay. It's mm-hmm. pure water, it's like that. So I'd like to bring that ring particles without any melting and <laughs> without many, <laughs> many vaporizations, just the intact as the intact ice to back to Earth. In order to do that, you need a huge energy for the rockets. So I will spend uh, my ultimate budget to, uh, <laughs> to build that rocket. I am not building, but I will let the engineers to do that. <laughs> so to to get some water ice samples from the rings of Saturn and bring those yeah. samples back to Earth for the research. Yeah, and in terms of astrobiology, mm-hmm. again, Enkelda's plume sample would be very important. So the bringing back uh, plume is uh, also a very important project, and I want to make it happen. You send these to both Enceladus and uh, and the and the rings of Saturn, and I guess anywhere mm-hmm. else that you could possibly in the in the uh, outer solar system. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. That's uh, definitely sounds like something that would be interesting to study. And one final question here. I just like to leave all the listeners uh, with, you know, sort of a sort of some kind of interesting either fact, theory, suggestion, or piece of information for them to ponder after listening to this episode, something in your field that they can hear and then, you know, think about going forward. And, and this can be, 
you know, this could be, it, it could be something you've already mentioned in this episode. If, if uh, you want anything that you think is, is very important and anything just interesting, let's say. Right. So I think, uh, so ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, today I talk about uh, the system cases, most of my talk. But ultimately, what I really want to know, or I want to know, is that uh, the diversity of planetary systems and how many planets are like Earth. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, ultimate scientific questions we have to answer. So mm-hmm. now, today, by doing planetary explorations, uh, we and I try to understand the evolution of the solar system. But in the end, I try to understand how many Earths exist in this universe and how many, you know, life or how, what kind of life exists beyond the solar system. So I think this should be answered. And then this is ultimate questions of all researchers uh, need to go toward, I guess. You would like the, I guess, the listeners to sort of think about this question in, in their own minds, uh, how many yeah. planets are there out there that are, are, I guess, truly like Earth, not just Earth-sized, maybe yeah. atmosphere Even, and, yeah. and the, the potential for life on right. these planets as well. Mm. All right. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that is definitely something to think about. It's, as you said, pretty much the, the ultimate question in, in this mm. uh, field. And it's... Uh, it's something it may take a while before we really have yeah. a good answer for any of this, but uh, right. I mean, I, it's definitely something to think about whether it's, yeah, uh, I will let the kids to do that. Yeah. In the future. <laughs> yeah. I will focus on maybe the solar system, but uh, the kids can go to, you know, extra solar system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it was, uh, it was really great talking to you today. And I think we have a, a lot of interesting information that we've gone over uh you're involved with a a lot of missions and i know you're a very busy person and you've got uh probably a lot of work ahead of you today still so i, <laughs> I, I don't want to keep you much longer so i'll just <laughs> say thank you so much for joining us on the, this episode yeah, you're and welcome uh... maybe in the future we'll have you back for another episode well, thank, thank you, you very much have thank a great you. day you too thank you